that was the Linda Lindas with Racist Sexist Boy, and before that, No Clue. And again, this is from a performance, LA Public Library, and we'll share a link to the video on our website. Okay, much more to get to. Uh, this is from a, a news source I hadn't seen before. It's Tribune of the People, which is a revolutionary news service, and you can find it at tribuneofthepeople.news. And this is an article from May 23rd, 2021. Rallies, marches, and solidarity with heroic Palestinian resistance across the U.S. And I think it's important to share this because a lot of these stories don't make it to mainstream and corporate media. So I wanted to share this as well. All right. This is by Dimitri Sanz. Uh, hundreds booed U.S. President Joe Biden when he visited Dearborn, Michigan, as part of a mass worldwide protest. As part of mass worldwide protest this week in solidarity with the Palestinian people and against U.S. imperialism for its role in Israel's crimes, thousands more mobilized in U.S. cities to celebrate Palestinian resistance and to condemn the Israeli murder of over 200 Palestinians, including dozens of children. Despite the ceasefire agreement between Hamas and the Israeli government, protests continued through this weekend, and more are scheduled in the days to come. Uh, some of excuse me. <coughs> some of the largest rallies and marches took place on Saturday, May fifteenth, the seventy-third anniversary of the Nakba, the catastrophe which marks the date when the displacement of Palestinians began in full as the Zionist State of Israel accelerated its campaign of genocide upon its formation. Many of these solitary events saw protesters of all ages and various backgrounds demonstrating. Uh, the broad support for the Palestinian cause within the U.S. People in the U.S. have loudly echoed the call of the people worldwide standing with Palestinians in militant resistance to Zionist colonialism and U.S. imperialism. In Los Angeles, thousands marched through the streets on Saturday, at one point blocking traffic on Freeway 405. The police response, one attendee told Tribune, was comparable to that of the May uprisings last year, with officers deploying riot gear sound cannons, and almost running numerous protesters over with vehicles. Later in the week, hundreds would protest at the Israeli consulate in West Los Angeles, chanting, Free, Free Palestine. In Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, hundreds protested at Israel's U.S. Embassy. In Boston last weekend, protesters disrupted traffic, marching to the area's Israeli consulate, where they unfurled a large banner that read, Free Palestine. Other large protests took place in New York, Philadelphia, Sacramento, New Orleans, Houston, and more. Uh, New York saw clashes between Palestinian solidarity protesters and supporters of Zionism. In one incident, a supporter of Israel chased after a young child who snatched the Israeli flag out of his hands, but the man was beaten back by Palestine supporters who defended the child. New York police targeted the pro-Palestine demonstrators for arrest rather than the pro-Israel demonstrator. When faced with state troopers at the Texas state capitol, hundreds of protesters in Austin chanted, there is only one solution, ooh, uh, inf intifada revolution. The rally, which began on the sidewalk, was too large to be contained and spilled un into the streets, turning into an unpermitted march through downtown Austin. One Austin protester held a portrait of Palestinian political prisoner George Abdallah. Speakers called for overthrowing U.S. imperialism and uniting all resistance struggles with the, cl with the class struggle. I think this time, as hard as it seems for people in Gaza and Jerusalem, is really promising, said an attendee of the Austin rally who grew up in Gaza. If all Palestinians unite and fight together, then we will finally be on the right track. It is always right for us to be in resistance. And they have a video as well. Uh, in Charlotte, at a rally of a few hundred people, one speaker called for solidarity between the movement for black lives in the U.S. and the Palestinian rebellion. 
Thousands demonstrated in San Francisco in front of the Israeli consulate at a pro-Palestine protest in Fresno. Zionist counter-protesters were ran out and Israeli flags were burned. Um, the Kansas City Sister Cities International Bridge lined with flags from countries around the world. Protesters tore down an Israeli flag and replaced it with a Palestinian flag to the cheers of the crowd. Uh, other protests were held in Pittsburgh and Orlando. In Pittsburgh, the protests initiated at East Liberty Presbyterian Church and marched towards the Carnegie Mellon University, where protesters condemned the university's collaboration with the Israeli Defense Forces. On Saturday, there were demonstrations in Portland, Tulsa, and other cities, with more solidarity demonstrations expected in the coming days. And there's a lot more photos in this article as well. Wow. <sighs> Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath here. That's a lot. I'm just wanting to share what was happening, what's been happening around the country. Oh, goodness. And also on the episode of the show, I believe last week or the week before, we also shared some events and ways uh, in which uh, Jewish communities in the U.S. were showing solidarity with Palestinians and there's a couple of orgs that folks can donate to and also support. Um, so I wanted to, to share that as well. And yes, there are Jewish-led actions against apartheid, and as well as a debrief and open organizing call that happened. So I wanted to share those links. And this is from uh, ifnotnowmovement.org that you can find as well as Jewish Voice for Peace. Whew, deep breath. Speaking of colonialism, uh, wanted to share this is a brief abstract. Sometimes we go kind of, everything's connected, definitely believe that, and also wanted to share just a bit of history as well, because that's very informative to what's going on right now. And this is from a magazine called uh, Science Advances, which I don't believe I've necessarily read from before, but did want to share at least the abstract of this article that came out on May 19th of this year. Large-scale reptile extinctions following European colonization of the Guadalupe Islands. Guadalupe Islands. This is uh, from Corentin Ochitan, Emmanuel Paradis, Salvador Bailon, Sandrine Ruard, uh, Ivan Einik, and uh, Anud Lenope. And many more authors. Okay. Uh, Lenoble, uh, Olivier Lorvelec, and Tresset and Nicole Boven, and I hope I'm uh, sharing, speaking the names correctly. And the abstract from this article, large-scale extinction is one of the defining challenges of our time as human processes fundamentally and irreversibly reshape global ecosystems, while the extinction of large animals with popular appeal garners widespread public and research, uh, research interest. The importance of smaller, less charismatic species to ecosystem health is increasingly recognized. Benefiting from systemically, uh, systematically collected fossil and archaeological archives, we examined snake and lizard extinctions in the Guadalupe Islands of the Caribbean study of the Caribbean. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I get to that point <laughs> after an hour where sometimes the words run into each other, so I'm going to take my time here. A study of about... 43,000 bone remains across six islands revealed a massive extinction of 50 to 70% of Guadalupe's snakes and lizards following European colonization. In contrast, earlier indigenous populations coexisted with snakes and lizards for thousands of years without affecting their diversity. 
study of archaeological remains provides insights into the causes of snake and lizard extinctions and shows that failure to consider fossil-derived data probably contributes to substantial underestimation of human impacts to global biodiversity. Wow. And then there's a whole article here um, with a lot more information. So if you're interested in reading more, you can go to the Science Advances website. And again, we will post a link on our website. Wow. Whew. That's a lot. I'm going to take a, a breath for a moment. Um, and I wanted to share a video the audio from a video certainly is from the gravel institute i recommend following them on twitter you can follow them at gravel institute also i'm on twitter and i do a lot of uh shared tweets on there so feel free to follow me on there as well r-o-m-a-n-r-i-m-e-r -E so this is a video called um is uh, excuse me is uber scamming you i think a lot of us know the answer to that Personally, I think I've maybe written in one Uber in my, or two my entire life, and that's when someone else has ordered them. And it's just a shame because I'm all about, uh, you know, public transportation, accessible transportation, and walking and biking. And, oh, it's just uh, it's a lot. Okay, so I'm going to play the audio from this video. I'll leave my mic on in case I need to describe any of the visual images, but hopefully should be included here in the uh, in the audio. Among the pantheon of corporations that have emerged out of Silicon Valley, Uber occupies a special place. The company is worth $100 billion. Hundreds of billions of dollars worth of trips and delivery orders have been booked using its app. And I want to share the uh, speaker's name. And this is Edward. Ungueso Jr., who's a staff writer at Vice. Trips and delivery orders have been booked using its app. It gets tens of billions of dollars in revenue each year. Uber is everywhere, and the narrative of Uber is also everywhere. It says that Uber is innovative, that it can disrupt the taxi industry and make money doing it, and that it can offer flexibility and opportunity to its army of drivers. Everybody wins. There's one problem. None of that is true. Let's start with one basic fact. For a company so prominent, there's something very strange. Uber has never, not once, earned a single profit. You might be confused. How can it be that such a large company, with such a popular service, has simply never made money? When you find out the answer, you discover something important. You discover that Uber is fundamentally a scam, a company that exists to scam its investors, its users, and most importantly, to scam its workers. Despite everything you might hear, Uber is not a technology company. While the company may brag about its sophisticated algorithm, in reality, Uber is just another taxi company. There's nothing fundamentally more efficient about Uber than there was with your local taxi service. The business is the same. There's no real way to innovate someone driving someone or something from point A to point B. Using an app to match riders with drivers is so simple that local taxi companies do the same thing. In fact, Uber is less efficient than taxi companies. Most normal taxi companies don't spend huge amounts on marketing or lobbying or corporate headquarters. They don't pay their CEO $45 million a year. Uber has higher costs than traditional taxi operators in every category except fuel. So why is Uber everywhere while taxi companies go out of business? It all goes back to Uber's master plan. First, with massive amounts of money from venture capitalists, Uber subsidized significantly cheaper rides than what taxi companies could offer. 
to attract customers away from them. Then, after years of undercutting competitors and driving them to bankruptcy, resulting in a wave of suicides by cab drivers, Uber established near monopolies on local markets. Now, Uber is often the default way to get around if you don't have a car. And once Uber has eradicated its competition, it can make itself profitable at expense of users and drivers, raising its fares to what taxis offered or higher while pushing down drivers' wages. The plan is not efficiency. It's monopoly. And that's not just me theorizing. A 73-page article in the Transportation Law Journal took a deep look at Uber's business and concluded one thing. Uber has no ability, now or in the foreseeable future, to earn sustainable profits in a competitive marketplace. Uber's investors cannot earn returns on the money they invested without achieving levels of market dominance that would allow them to exploit anti-competitive market power. So that is Uber's grand plan. It is not increasing the productivity or efficiency of the industry that it's in. It's subsidizing its rides with venture capital cash until it can build a monopoly and do whatever it wants. So users who buy Uber's narrative may be getting scammed, but no one is getting it worse than Uber's workers. So Uber relies on classifying drivers as independent contractors. In the United States, that means an individual provides services to a company, but is independent of the company and its control. Uber says that because drivers can choose what work to accept and for how long, they're fully independent. Now, most of Uber's workers drive part-time, but they actually do relatively little driving, and 90% of them quit each year. The majority of Uber's labor is done by a smaller group of workers who drive full-time for the company. So who are these drivers? In cities like New York, the vast majority are immigrants from places like India, Bangladesh, and Haiti. They desperately need cash to support their families and send remittances back home. These are people at the very margins of our society. And how does Uber treat them? Uber treats them like a pool of cheap labor, easy to exploit and then discard. Uber's always been clear about one thing. It does not care about its drivers. At Uber's Greenlight Centers, where drivers register with the company, they were not even allowed to enter bathrooms reserved for employees. In fact, when Uber was talking about how it would become profitable, it stated clearly that it wanted to get rid of its drivers and transition entirely to self-driving cars. But Uber's technology was so bad that after burning billions of dollars, it had to give up. So for now, Uber is stuck with its drivers. And in order to appear like it's coming closer to profitability, it's been cutting their wages since 2015. Whenever Uber increases its cut from each reduces the minimum rate for drivers, margins increase by that much immediately. As a result, Uber drivers regularly earn less than the minimum wage. After taking hidden costs like fuel into account, the average Uber driver earns a little over $9 an hour, about 50% less than what taxi drivers made before Uber. In fact, half of Uber drivers live at or below the poverty level. 20% of them have to use food stamps to survive. Unable to afford a home, some drivers even sleep in their cars. Drivers, with nothing to their name, get trapped in predatory car rental schemes promoted by Uber. They garnish your wages until you've paid it off with interest. One study from Georgetown found that a third of drivers reported falling into a debt trap. Some ended up earning less than $5 an hour. And because its drivers are technically independent contractors, Uber can avoid pesky requirements like minimum wages, health insurance, or paid sick leave. Drivers can't unionize to bargain for better conditions. Uber has all the power to make sure it can stay that way. When California tried to classify drivers as employees, Uber spent hundreds of millions of dollars 
on a campaign to overturn it with a ballot proposition written by Uber's lawyers. And even though Uber talks about flexibility, that's not what drivers actually experience. Drivers may not have physical bosses to order them around, but they're ruled by something even worse, an algorithmic overseer that's more intrusive than any flesh and blood boss could ever be. Uber's only actual innovations are in surveilling and disciplining its workforce. They're always watching, monitoring driving behavior, calculating fraud profiles, using invisible secret functions to discipline drivers as well as customers. Fall below an arbitrary threshold for ratings? Fired. Reject too many trips because you don't want to lose any money? Fired. Did a customer make a false report? Fired. So that's the freedom that Uber offers. It frees drivers to make below minimum wage, to sleep in their cars, to beg for five-star ratings, and work themselves to the bone. But at the end of the day, Uber, like other gig companies, is an innovator. Not in technology, but in exploitation. It's leading the war against labor in ways other companies never thought possible. It oversees a pool of atomized, ultra-exploited laborers, writes its own regulations, and has done it all without earning a single cent of profit. Imagine what sort of world they'll need to start making about. I'm Edward Onguaso Jr., staff writer advice for the Gravel Institute. Oof. A lot of information there. Um, and we'll be posting a link to this uh, on our website. Wow. All right. So it's just about almost 1.30 here. Did want to get to a few more of information and again just a drop in the bucket of what's out there and this is from uh, Bay, attention bay area san francisco follow a rock bay area and you can follow them at a r o c bay area and their blocktheboat.org mobilization against apartheid state text your name to 181 block zim and that's 1812-562-5946 for updates and calls to action call 415-861-7444 to get in touch and stand for Free Palestine, and so more information there. And again, we'll post a link on our website. Also, there have been quite a few anti-trans bills that some folks have been trying to pass across the country, and wanted to share some clarifying information from uh, Chase Strangio, who is a lawyer and also shares a lot of information about this um, on a regular basis. So, following Chase on Twitter is a great idea. If you would like to learn more. Twitter address handle is at Chase Strangio, and that's uh, C-H-A-S-E-S-T-R-A-N-G-I-O. And Chase writes, this is on May 22nd, I am seeing everywhere posts and headlines about Tennessee banning healthcare for trans youth. That is wrong. Please be careful with the info you are spreading in this very precarious time. Here is what happened. Tennessee passed many laws targeting trans youth, including a ban on sports, a ban on restroom use, a mandate that businesses post signs if they allow trans people to use the restroom, and a law that unnecessarily codifies the standards of care for treating trans young people. But all the healthcare law does is say you cannot treat pre-pubertal young people with hormones to treat gender dysphoria. No, that is zero kids receive hormones pre-puberty for gender dysphoria already. So the law does nothing to disrupt the existing care. It sends a message of disapproval. It scares kids and their families. But the only medical treatment provided for gender dysphoria is initiated at puberty, not before. So the law does not disrupt the care. The fact that people are saying the care is banned is terrifying people. 
Young people across the country are fearing for their well-being, and we have to be discerning about what we share because people's lives and bodies are in deeply precarious positions. Arkansas has cut off care for trans youth, but Tennessee did not. To all the media outlets writing these headlines for clicks, please stop. You're doing a terrible thing, making people scared and spreading misinformation. Breath. It's about 1.30. Uh, did want to get to at least a couple more uh, news articles here. Take a deep breath because it's a lot, and I don't mean to just keep on, A, running through all these because and without the time to just take a breath and let them sit. Um, and also, there's I recognize so much more that's happening. So, again, here for a few hours a week and... Uh, get to what we can, show the connections between everything, including people in positions of power who cause great harm to the rest of us and how we can push back against that. Um, also, there's a thread, let's see. I think, I think, yeah, the last thing I'm gonna get to before we play some music and, and uh, end up, and because uh, it's just, wow, it's been a lot, it's been a lot. So this is from uh, Robert G. Reeve, who is a privacy tech worker. So I think the fact that so many of us use technology and, uh, as the Uber video mentioned, just or the anti-Uber video mentioned, uh, just uh, it's important just to understand what these tech companies are up to. So I wanted to share this thread that was on Twitter. Uh, and Robert writes, um, and you can also follow Robert on Twitter, at Robert G. Reeve. I'm back from a week at my mom's house, and now I'm getting ads for her toothpaste brand, the brand I've been putting in my mouth for a week. We never talked about this brand or Googled it or anything like that. As a privacy tech worker, let me explain why this is happening. First of all, your social media apps are not listening to you. This is a conspiracy theory. It's been debunked over and over again. But frankly, they don't need to because everything else you give them unthinkingly is way cheaper and more powerful. Way more powerful. Your apps collect a ton of data from your phone, your unique device ID, your location, your demographics. We know this. Let's we know this. Okay. Data, data aggreg aggregators pay to pull in data from everywhere. When I use my discount card at the grocery store, every purchase, that's a data set for sale. They match uh, this person, Robert's uh, Harris Teeter purchases to his Twitter account. Um, because uh, he says, I gave both those companies my email address and phone number, and I agreed to all that data sharing when I accepted those terms of service and the privacy policy. Here is where it gets truly nuts, though. Uh, and this is written in first person from Robert. Uh, Robert says, if my phone is regularly in the same GPS location as another phone, they take note of that. They start reconstructing the web of people I'm in regular contact with. The advertisers can cross-reference my interests and browsing history and purchase history to those around me. It starts showing me different ads based on the people around me, family, friends, coworkers. It will serve me ads for things I don't want, but it knows someone I'm in regular contact with might want. To subliminally get me to start a conversation about, I don't know, fucking toothpaste. It never needed to listen to me for this. It's just comparing aggregated metadata. The other thing is... This is just out there in the open. Tons of people report on this. It's just nobody cares. We have decided our privacy just isn't worth it. 
It's a losing battle. We've already given away too much of ourselves. And then this an article from it. Is Facebook spying on you? And then quotes uh, from an article. We spotted a senior official at the Department of Defense walking through the Women's March. His wife was also on the mall that day, something we discovered after tracking him to his home in Virginia. Article from the Times. Uh, 12 million phones, one data set, zero privacy. And the next... Uh, uh, so they know my mom's toothpaste. They know I was at my mom's. They know my Twitter. Now I get Twitter ads for my mom's toothpaste. Your data isn't just about you. It's about how it can be used against every person you know and people you don't to shape behavior unconsciously. Apple's latest updates let you block apps tracking and Facebook is mad. They're begging you to just press accept and go back to business as usual. Block the fuck out of every app's ads. It's not just about you. Your data reshapes the internet. And there's a link to an article from Vox.com, why Facebook and Apple are fighting over your privacy. The internet is never going to be the wacky place it was when I had a live journal and people shared protein gifts in the form of YTMNDs. Big business has come to suck the joy and your dollars out of it. At least make it hard for them. Oh, and this is uh, Robert's uh, Twitter high score. If you like D&D, okay. So that's uh, the link to more of Robert's info. So yeah, yikes. There's a lot there for sure. And we'll post a link. I, I try to end the show usually on some optimism, but wow, it's hard. It's hard to. Yikes. Um I think uh check out our website, weeklyweb.org. Lots of upcoming events and ways to take action. Because yeah, things are terrifying and also so many ways that folks can show up. So I'm gonna play some Linda Lindas and I think that's gonna be it for us today. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I did a lot of talking. Wow. All right. Uh, thanks again to Val for, for having the time to, to chat. And uh, we'll be back next week and end up the show with a couple of uh, Linda Linda songs, and these are some covers. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Oh, I should, you know, hi, uh, promote the Patreon. There are some shows, some podcasts out there that have, uh, you know, engineers and producers and advertisers, and this is a very much... Uh, DIY project here. I've been doing it now for almost eight years. So if you were touched or you learned anything on the show today and or <laughs> like the music, anything at all, I'm going to support the show. Please, you know, spread the word. This is available on multiple streaming uh, uh, mediums. <laughs> we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Um, also on FM Player. Any other apps out there? Mutiny Radio has a has an app of its own, and also there's plenty of other great shows here on Mutiny Radio. So please do check out the website. And if you'd like to donate to the show, that would be super helpful. We have a Patreon up. You can find it at our page at weeklyrev.org, or go to Patreon.com/forward/slash/weeklyrev. And big thanks to all the folks who chip in on a monthly basis. Uh, it makes uh, it makes it so much easier to be able to come in here and share these this news with you all. So thanks again. And we'll be back next week. Whew. Another deep breath. Uh, have a great week, everyone.
Of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports. Vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead passing? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. 
So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... <laughs> you uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you. Podcast yeah. and watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5 to 7. 5 yeah, to right. I'm time. so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's watch oh, full boy. length. Oh, wait, let's see what the theme song is. Oh, never mind. Bye. Oh, see you next time. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'll tell you. Can I see? Jesus. I am Teddy Billy And I will cut the Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy. No matter what you're into, make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, 
We have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and are passion, who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution, who would rather die than fall in line to conform, who constantly challenge the norm, who greet each and every day as if just born. I say to you, I know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact, and in fact, I know it best when I say to you, I love you. Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and files and files of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Bamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off. For <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge with the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcast and look for Comedy Clubhouse. With a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. You laugh off your old tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
watch if you want to. You can slap Spiegelman's behind. L-W-A-F-L-M-N-O-Y-T on Mutiny Radio. Mutiny. Mutiny! It's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! It's, it's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! Oh, my turn-offs are guys who say mutiny. Well, let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike Spiegelman. Hey! Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. L-L-L-L-W. Oh, welcome to Let's Watch a Full Life Movie on YouTube. Hey, Carl. Hi, Carl. Hey, Mike. We can use you if you want to. We can leave our friends behind. Yeah. And my friend's you. My friend's you, Mike. I'm going to leave your behind. You. I love them without that. Uh, welcome to the show. We are going to watch a full length movie on YouTube. Um, uh, follow us on our podcast, L-W-A-F-L-M-N-O-Y-T. Always a great show to be front. I'd love to say that we are streaming right now on Radio.fm first. It's at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Radio.fm.
listener, mutinyradio.fm in .sf, coming at you from 278 121st Street and Florida Street. Don't have Aqua Q tonight. We're going to be having an interview with Storied SF. Jeff's going to be here. We're going to take some pictures and we're going to have a little interview. Very excited. We're double dipping on a podcast, two podcasts recording at one time with Storied SF. So coming up in the next hour. Then at 6 o'clock, we have a joke workshop every Monday at 6 o'clock. 18 comedians, the first eight all get four-minute sets and four minutes of comments by their comic peers. And then it's just an open mic with four minutes after that. But everybody's really nice and pays attention. And that is Joke Workshop at 6 o'clock every Monday. You can sign up. Just friend Facebook. Like us on Mutiny Radio Facebook. Like our Instagram, Mutiny Radio SF. Just money on our Venmo at Mutiny Radio. That would be great. <laughs> and uh, listen to some more music. This is an old morning train by J.D. Ewell. He's no longer with us on this mortal coil, but we still get to listen to his musical choices, his DJ Wonderman. Miss him very much. That's the morning train with J.D. Oh, no. I've said too much Or maybe I haven't said Was just a dream. Jackie Naylor's version of Losing My Religion from the album The Color Five, which was released in 2006. Before Jackie, the Isley Brothers, a track found on Forever Gold, released in 1977, their version of Todd Rundgren's Hello, It's Me. Before that, Gene Chandler and one of my numerous theme songs, The Duke of Earl. Number one single in 1962. And also topping the charts at number one in 1956, Elvis Presley with I Want You, I Need You, I Love You. Speaking of Elvis, dig this.
guy. What a party that was at the county jail. The Jeff Beck group from the album Beckola, on which they performed two Elvis Presley songs. We heard Jailhouse Rock. They also do All Shook Up on there. Ron Wood on bass. Nicky Hopkins, piano. Tony Newman, drums. Jeff Beck on guitar, of course, and vocals extraordinaire, Rod Stewart. Also on some extraordinary vocals, Eric Burden, 1966, with the debut of the group known as Eric Burden and the Animals, on British radio, doing Heartbreak Hotel. Let's go down to Texas now and hear Rosemarie from 1966. Listening to Mutiny Radio.fm in .sf, and I am here right now with Storied SF and Jeff. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, a Storied SF. Hi. Am I on here? You are I'm on. I'm not hearing myself. Yes. You have to be a pretty close to the mic. Oh, okay. There, there you are. go. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Hi, and Pam. you can always turn your volume up a little bit more if you okay. like. Okay. And hi. Thanks so much for being here on Mutiny Radio. I'm super excited. Storied SF, another podcast, local podcast. Yes. Doing stories about. I'm like, I'm interesting enough to do a story about, yay! Oh, yes, you are, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you f- for having us. Um, this is also a little bit different than what we normally do. We're not always in the studio. Like, we bring the studio to wherever it is. Um, should I introduce our project? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so um, I, when I say our, um, the Story San Francisco is Michelle Kilfeather sitting here to my left and myself, I'm Jeff Hunt, and uh, I I guess I'm like the the audio person and she's the visual. We're an audio visual. Um, she does photographs. I do the podcast part. So um, we started about four years ago, and our sort of impetus or the inspiration to to do this was that you know we have both been here at this point 
20 plus years. Um, but we found ourselves four f- years ago or so complaining, doing that thing that we all do, like drinking ourselves to death and be like, fuck this city and what's happening. But no, it's like, no, but we also love this place and want to turn that into something positive where we celebrate the people who are still here still, and yeah. still doing good stuff. R.I.P. Hemlock. R.I.P. I mean, do, do you want to just do an hour of R.I.P.? Yeah, we can do that, right? right? Like every every small art gallery, every small business in San Francisco right now, all the cool things. It was like, where'd they go? Yeah. All the empty storefronts. It's scary. And then Lauren. everyone moved here because they were like, it's so cool. But then all the artists have to move because they can't afford it. And it's like, oh, what do we do? Yeah. And like La Rondaya became a salad joint like is that is there anything more yeah. telling than that salad lounge yeah um, what does that even mean but no it's you know uh i i think it's it's like it, it it's specific to what to what we do but it's also i think a a general way to live life is like are you going to turn the negative into something positive and try to learn from it and I mean, I have to say, like, like going back even pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. the joy of this project that we're doing, because we're a weekly podcast, we're doing 49 episodes a year, so we're just constantly out there meeting and getting the life stories and really getting to know and share the stories of amazing people. Um, through the through the pandemic, though, I mean, that's it's like that's t- taken up a notch because everyone is. Tra- Right. and not being social and not maybe not meeting new people. Although for so. creativity, I think for artists, it's been a boon because how right. many songwriters wrote a whole new album? How right. many people I think Taylor wrote Swift did like five, right? right? So <laughs> yeah. people have been super creative. Artists right. had time to paint. People had time to write. I think a lot of people just watched a lot of Netflix. But right. there have been people creating projects because they had the time to finally do it, right. which is exciting. And no lack of uh, uh, inspiration. Right. Um, <laughs> So, the world's falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, I guess that's what we do. We have a different theme every season for each 49 episodes. And, and this season, we're about, um, I think, 13, a dozen or so episodes in. Our theme this season is We're Still Here. <laughs> uh, we did launch in this year. Um, so speaking to a lot of things, but the exodus or texodus, as I've, I've heard it referred to, is like no... Uh, a lot of people did leave by choice. A lot of people were forced to leave, unfortunately. Um, but we're still here. There's still, still a here. city. And and I think um, for Michelle and myself, it's like there's a – and a lot of folks out there, I believe. Um, there's a chance to, to make a better city moving forward. Right? Yeah. Because if we're building – once things are broken, we can rebuild. Yeah. So now's the time. I just was surprised that the questionably housed stayed like the same. Yeah. I, I live in the Tenderloin, so yeah. pretty much nothing changed. Right. And I thought like with all of the people moving out, couldn't we have found homes for the ten thousand questionably housed people? And no, that didn't nothing that didn't change. And with literally <laughs> the biggest building or was for a minute on the west coast. Like, that's just now empty. Right, <laughs> right. Like, and I guess it has art on the top. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, um, definitely not not ignoring, like, all the problems that are still here um, yeah. and all the people who are suffering uh, at all. Um, but I think that's perhaps, you know, I'm not pretending I have any of the answers that Michelle right. has any of the answers or any one person has the answers, but there is a chance to build a better city, um, a more equitable city a fair city, a loving, respectful. I mean, look around. Like I, The one thing I feel like almost everyone who we've had on the show 
me asking, you know, like, what is it that drew you to San Francisco if you weren't, if you aren't from here originally? It's like, it's just beautiful. And That's it's true. got, it's got this history of magic. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. Poetry, everything, that whole. So what brought me to San Francisco eventually I mean, as a child, I used to come in on the weekends and stuff, and it was very exciting. And my dad used to work in the city at the newspaper agency, which was the Chronicle Examiner, and and so he was right there on Fifth Street. And I'd come in as a kid, and I just thought it was so exciting. Yeah. Uh, but then, as an adult, I got into graduate school finally. So I came here 13 years ago to go to San Francisco State and yes. get some master's degrees. Common thread on our show. Right. There's a lot of. It all goes back to SF State. I love it. I went there too. Oh, well, and I loved, so that was the thing about SF State. I wanted to get a master's in writing, but I didn't want to just, I lived in San Diego at the time and I wanted to go to the best school that I could in California and it's for writing. It's San Francisco State. So I'm up here, got a couple of master's degrees and I'm never going to leave. Right. Yeah. And then I started comedy and then, and I, right when I moved here, I started doing radio when it was Pirate Cat here Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. building now, which is Mutiny. So I've been with this particular building since 2008. So, I mean, I love, I never want to leave San Francisco. I love it so much. Yes. <laughs> like, what can I do to stay? I love it here forever. Do you remember that feeling? You're like, I might be the last one. <laughs> that still loves it? No, I think there's, well, it's exciting. No, that the last one left. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I always knew I'd thrive in the apocalypse. I kind of feel yeah. like, I am legend. I will stay here. I will, I the, will eat pigeons. The world <laughs> caught up with fun. you. <laughs> well, I, I always thought I wanted to call it, you know, the pandemic. I was like, this is oh, great. Yeah. I'm. I've always, I've been kind of waiting for the, the pandemic to happen yeah. and it, it was fine. It was, yeah. I mean, I was always poor. So everyone else came down to my level. I was like, yeah, <laughs> now we're all in the same, same place. But I grew up on, I was born in Livermore. So I'm a Livermore on um, 1974, quite some time ago. And um, I've never lived outside of California. Okay. And I, I just don't know. I lived you know, I lived in San Diego for a while. I lived in Davis for a while, but I came back to the Bay Area because I love it here. Even yeah. my family disappeared. I just, now, like, oh. this is my, not like disappeared. They just moved, you know, like they left the Bay Area. And yeah. So they they went far flung. But I'm never, I'm never leaving. So in the sense of your family, you are the last one. I'm the last here. one, yeah. Sure. Um, okay, yeah. Can, can we make this about you now? Sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's, that's what we I do. I hate talking about myself. I never yeah. do that on stage. But you are no. the, the subject matter expert of your life story. That's, that's right? true. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Do you know how your parents ended up around here? Or like Yeah. Um, they both worked in the city and they had moved here. Uh, my father grew up in Redwood City and my mother grew up in Illinois. And then okay. she moved to San Francisco to work. And I guess she met my father in a in an elevator on Leavenworth Street. I like like okay. in a in an apartment building, right. we were going. He was going to someone's house, and she was in. The, she had her apartment there, and it was on like Leavenworth Post or something. And they met in the elevator, I guess. Love in an elevator. Yeah, love in an elevator in like nineteen sixty something nine or whatever. When, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting time to come to San Francisco for work. Right. Am I right? Like, yeah. Not- when- a lot of people's reasons to come here then but they were not hippies in right. by any stretch of the Sounds imagination like they, weren't. they were no they are not at all they were like i don't know what i don't know what they were but they're definitely they're very republican now so i don't know yeah. what they were then but okay. they're not they definitely are not hippies not call me pinko liberals like me right but they met here and then decided to get married and moved to the east bay and can we know, say we got a house yeah um so i guess first they lived in pleasanton and then they lived 
Then they moved to Danville. I grew up in Danville. Okay. Oh my God, soul sucking wasteland of Lexuses. Yes. But I know it was like poor little rich girl. I was so I was raised in Danville, which is a terribly wealthy place. Mm-hmm. And but everyone else was so much richer than me that I thought we were poor. Right. So I didn't understand. I just didn't understand <laughs> that everyone was rich, and I was like, ooh. I only got a Hyundai for my birthday. <laughs> I didn't get a BMW or a Mustang like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I got a new car. What am I complaining about? Was it racially diverse? <laughs> we, had, we had four. Okay, so we had four African-American students in my class. One of them was Randy Wynn, who went on oh, to play yeah. for the Mariners and then the, and then the Giants. The Giants, and is on, uh, he's a commentator he's for a the commentator Giants. He's a commentator now, days. yeah. And so he was actually, he graduated the same year I did. And I, it's a funny story. So I was a cheerleader, and he played basketball all the time. And I had He's very tall. He was very tall. I had a very big crush on him. And so I'm coming off of El Cerro. I'm in a car with my mother. I'm like 16 years old. And I say to her, I have kind of have a crush on Randy Wynn. And she's like, the first thing out of her mouth is, don't you ever marry a black man. Oh, mom. <laughs> oh, mom. Oh, so what did I do? No. And when I was 25, I got married to a black, a black guy. So I was married for, I was with. Um, he was like my college sweetheart. We were we were together for 13 years, married for seven. Awesome. So I used to be like um, a bourgeois corporateer back in the day. Okay. And um, you said cheerleader. Can we I talk was. A, can yes. we talk about more stuff about sure, growing up? Yeah. So I was a cheerleader. Like because, high school level. High school or? cheerleader. Yeah, oh, I was shit. a varsity cheer. And the only reason I did it is it was reverse stalking because I liked. So I liked Todd Benatar, and he was incidentally the nephew of Pat Benatar. I was just gonna say that name. Yeah, what? Yeah. And so, he's in and the family. She, she lived in Blackhawk, and so his family lived there, or whatever. So I had a huge crush on Todd Benatar, and I was like. <gasps> I can reverse stalk. If I'm there first, it's not stalking. So if I'm a cheerleader, I'm around them all the time, and this will be great. Like, I'll meet all the boys, and all the boys will like me, and it'll be so fun. And then every Friday after the games, like basketball is Tuesday, Thursday, but um, Fridays were football games. And after the games, I'd be, like, standing around with the rest of the cheerleaders, and I'd be like, where's the party? Where's the party? And they'd be like, no, there's no party. And then on Monday, everybody would be talking about the party. Oh, man. I'm a cheerleader. I'm supposed to be popular now. What is happening with my life? So it was – but nobody likes to know it all, and nobody's like, invite me to the party. Invite me to the party. So that was was like my – that was my – I love that that was your motivation for cheerleading. Yeah, of course. Um, Short skirts. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's warmer over there than it is in the city. But in the the wintertime, we wore our little skirts. We had to wear our little outfits to school on the day of the game. Right. And I still fit in my cheerleading outfits, by the way. I love to wear them. Any excuse to wear them, I'm like, ha, 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 I still fit in them. But tiny little skirts. And it was wintertime. It was cold, and we just had to go. And they'd say, oh, don't wear nylons. Make sure that your legs are... Just bare, and I was oh like, "Why dude. are we doing this?" So it was. Yeah, maybe because Danville. Maybe because bit. Danville. Or America. Danville's a little more like America. Than, well, and this right. was the early '90s, so like, yeah. you know, misogyny didn't exist, and girls walk. I mean, it was just like <laughs> invitation to objectify me. Yeah. Which, but that was what I was kind of looking for. I was like, I want these guys to objectify me, but right. they were just playing basketball. They weren't actually interested in the cheerleaders. Right. So. That was fun. Are you, quick side note, are you going to help us get Randy Wynn on the show? <laughs> He'll remember me. He'll remember me from high school. Absolutely. I have no uh, doubt in my mind. That'd be a trip. My fiance would freak out. She, she used to work for the Giants, grew up a Giants fan, so, and she loves Randy Wynn. Yeah, he's uh, he looks pretty much exactly the same. He does. He looks like he's 22 or something. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I like him too, yeah, for the record. I, yeah, I um, so I. Mm-hmm. yeah, I was, I still, so 
one of I cheer I used to love cheerleading and they want they went to the Arco Arena twice. Our basketball team was really good. They like won the division one. That finals. was in Sacramento, right? Yeah, Arco yeah, okay. Arena. Okay. And so I got to cheer in Arco Arena, which was really exciting. But yeah. then one of my favorite, favorite stories is when I got to cheer in Arco Arena as an adult. And it was nineteen ninety seven and I won tickets to a Smashing Pumpkins concert. I won tickets to the front row at Arco Arena. No and I was so excited. I was freaking out. And I was so excited because I just won them walking around. I'd heard about the quad spies, quad spies. Anyways, so I win the <laughs> tickets and I'm losing my mind. And I get down to the front and garbage was opening, which I love. I love yes. Garbage. And it was Smashing Pumpkins. And I love the Smashing That's Pumpkins. That's a great bill. And so I know, right? So I'm down in the front row and my now ex-husband, he's there. And I'm like, I'm so excited. And we had seen the Cow Palace show and it was terrible. They had to end early because people were moshing and it was terrible and they were upset. So we bought tickets. Anyway, so we're there. And I'm on one side and he's on the other. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this side yell smashing and you're going to make this side yell pumpkins. He's yes. like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I was like, we're doing this. You get over there and we're doing this. So I get up in front and I'm like, the smashing pumpkins were in San Francisco and it sucked. And we're going to bring them out and make them so happy. This side's going to yell smashing. That side's going to yell pumpkins. So it Literally. starts with the people in the front smashing pumpkins, smashing pumpkins. I made a sold out Arco Arena. I'm not even fucking with you. Yes. The entire Arco Arena is screaming smashing pumpkins, smashing pumpkins, smashing pumpkins come out. Billy Corgan's like, we've never been brought on stage like this. <laughs> You're going to have the best show we've ever had. Hell and yeah. they just go. And I was like, I did that. I did that. You literally led the cheer I did. in a huge auditorium. You know, yeah, and it sold awesome. out. I was so happy. I was like, this is my cheerleading. This is what my whole life was training it for. Led up to that. That's fucking yeah, awesome. So that's like a childhood story. But that's from the 90s. I'm so old now that even the stories in the 90s are childhood stories. That's okay. So, we're, okay. we're old too. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and the, the last four years <laughs> aged all of us. Um, but did you, so did you have siblings? Do you I, have siblings? I do. I have an older brother, but he's also um, extremely right. Republican, Republican and okay. very religious. Yeah. Uh, and my, my upbringing was very, very Jesus centric. Okay. So I was super, super, super religious. It kind of checked like, all the very, boxes. It sounds like the white, white, Rich, Republican, and Christian. Right, yeah. And like, oh, it was singing for the choir and the whole thing. Like okay. Just being really involved in church. And, yeah. You know, I didn't drink or smoke or do anything fun till college, like yeah. all that kind of stuff. I was really clandestine. And no wonder no one wanted to invite me to the parties because there's like, no one wants to bring the stick in the mud. They're like, well, she doesn't have any fun. I'm like, I do. Let's sing songs to God. Come on. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. I would never, I would never do that at a party. I would probably be scared and hang in the back and be like, everyone's so cool. Yeah. Uh, but no, I grew up with Jesus. And it was weird because when I was little, I've always had a very vivid imagination. So of course, Christianity was perfect for me. <laughs> but I wanted to have an invisible cat friend when I was like seven or eight, like mm -hmm. a four foot tall fluffy, invisible cat friend. Mm -hmm. And my parents were like, no, you cannot have an invisible cat friend, but you can be best friends with a 33-year-old man who uh, sit right. on your bed every night and you can talk to him <laughs> about boys. You can hold his hand. And, and now they wonder why I have a beard fetish. But they're like, I loved, I loved Jesus so much. You can take long walks on the beach with our friend. Right. Yeah. It gives you piggybacks, the footsteps in the sand. He was carrying me the whole time. I'm like, geez, I want to kiss you on the face. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you were into it oh, for so a into while. It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, well, I love feeling feelings and Bible delving and feeling mm -hmm. one with the universe or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm, feeling mm -hmm. is feeling is good. But mm -hmm. it's mostly because I just, I've always been an outsider and I have a very vivid imagination. Mm. So, you know, 
hence crushes on boys that will never Never. like me and (laughs) going to them to be stalked yeah (laughs) well it's the same thing i kind of had a crush on my mailman for a while but i was like he comes to me yeah so it can't be stalking (laughs) like it's not he's there for other coming to me yeah so no i'm a terror i was i was a weird like i've always written poetry i've always written in a I have like my first journal from when I was seven still. And my very first entry is about boys. Like it's seriously about being at my brother's baseball game and staring at Jordan is so cute. And I'm going to all my brother's baseball games and getting a suicide soda and sit there. Oh, suicide sodas. Right. And it's like my first entry when I was seven. So, so my brother's older, incredibly successful wife, kids, right? Like really house looks like a pottery barn, you know, they open it up. There's never any dirt or cat hair, even though they right. have multiple cats. It's like, I don't get it. No, I, not the life. Well, the lifestyle, but also the the cleanliness that you're talking about. I've experienced that, and I'm like, how? They pay for a house. They're rich enough to have a house cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. It's just but like five minutes in the Bay Area, you have a collection of dust. Come on. That's true. How? And I live downtown, so like Geary Street just throws dirt yes. in the air, like just black dust all over my world. Yes. But that's fine. I've learned to love it. Did your brother also leave the Bay Area like your parents? Yeah, or? he's up in Seattle. Okay. Up to that area up in Washington. San Francisco light. Right. Yeah. But no fun. All suburban. Yeah, yeah. All just like singing yeah. songs to God on the guitar with the kids and going to church. And okay. Wow. Hanging out with their rich friends, drinking expensive wine, you know. So Love that's Christ. the Benjamins. Yeah, the Benjamins. Okay. They've got, they've got all the Benjamins. It was just you and your brother yeah, as far as kids. Brother. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what about um, friends growing up in, in Danville? Did you have a crew um, or did like did you find other – you you called yourself an outcast. I'm a did you have much, other outcast friends? or Kind of in high school, but I've, I've pretty much been a lone wolf because mm-hmm. I went to Christian school from kindergarten through like almost the end of seventh grade. And mm-hmm. the very first year in kindergarten, it was awful um, – I had a teacher, Mrs. Mowers. God, I hope she's dead. And she, seriously, she was yeah. so mean. And yeah. I remember being five, four or five, because I was young when I got into kindergarten. And we all had to memorize Bible verses. And when you memorized a Bible verse, everyone would get an ice cream cone, little tiny ice cream cone. But I memorized my Bible verse, and she gave me graham crackers. And she pulled me aside, and she's like, fat little girls don't ever get anywhere in the world. You should oh really eat the graham crackers. God. Now, the irony is that graham crackers and the ice cream cone probably had the same amount of calories. Right. But what it did is it separated me from the class, and it did make me an outsider because the teacher basically fat shamed me in front of the whole class. Dude. So then I was, like, different. And yeah. I'm the one who did the Bible verse and performed it and did so great, and I didn't get the ice cream. What the hell? Right. So that was, like, mm. the beginning of weirdness with Christianity of you have to be a certain way for God to love you. You have to be a certain way for people to love you. That's, and it has a lot to do with the way you look, which is weird because it's supposed to be about like your spirit or your soul. And then at the same time I was getting this very like external Kate Moss, be skinny. Although that's way before Kate Moss. That's like maybe the twiggy age. And they're like, no one listens to you unless you're skinny and pretty. And it wasn't like, Oh, you're smart and you can read and no one else can read. And that made me different, too, is I could, like, read when I was three or whatever. And so oh. when I was in kindergarten, I was reading Laura Ingalls Wilder, and everyone else was learning to read. And so they'd put me in a corner with my books, and everyone else would do stuff as a group. So I think that my outsiderness kind of started then. And yeah. it was the same kids in the class from kindergarten through, like, seventh grade. So I was known as, like, the fat, weird dork throughout mm. that whole time. And then teachers just... I mean, from year to year, it was just part of that school. And yeah. it was pretty, it was 
sucked, but... Well, also, fuck any group that says you can't have ice cream. <laughs> In general, like... I know, yeah. I mean, and also, graham crackers are not a consolation prize for ice cream. I love graham crackers. Not a consolation prize for right. ice cream, yeah. 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 Um, okay, anything else about your Danville growing up oh, that you God. want to talk well, about? I, mean, I can talk about anything. It was awful. So, well, that was the beginning of... When I was in kindergarten and all that stuff, I ended up having an eating disorder for okay. years. Okay. And I remember being like in third grade vacation Bible school. And I remember sitting in the chair and wearing shorts and putting my toes, being on my toes. Cause I felt like when my legs were down, they spread out and they looked so fat. Okay. And so I was like in third grade, like up on my toes, like trying to make my thighs look skinnier, Shit. which is such a weird thing for a third grader to be thinking no, about. Right. Right. Like. But I'm thinking about all the people who made you feel that way. Right. And the society. Yeah, yeah. So constant. And that was just, but I think Sad. that's just the, but that's the thing now is that it made me tougher, I guess. And I feel badly for snowflakes now that don't get bullied because did it make me a better person? Like right. maybe yeah. or not. I don't know. Yeah, it built defenses. It's like, a, you know, right. You, you learn how to react and. Defend yourself. Right. You, you, hopefully. Well, we no, have. I learned how to put on a mask and wear frosting because people uh, like okay. cake, but they like it better with frosting. <laughs> and just a lot of a, a lot of vomiting because yeah. it's a rich girl's disease. Like, I can't afford to be bulimic anymore because I'm on food stamps. But, right. like, I didn't realize at the time that I was it was really good for the economy because I was, like, four <laughs> times the consumer because I was right. consuming so much food and then just not eating it. Yeah. And I mean, years, like 13 years, I struggled with that. But wow. from early on, like, right. and it was, this is the craziest thing. The thing that sparked it is, I don't remember if you, if you remember different strokes. Oh, yeah. So the older sister, Dana Plato, yeah. there was one episode where she had bulimia. Mm-hmm. And she, it was her birthday, and there was a cake. And she ate the whole cake, and then she threw up. And I watched that, and I was like, oh, you do that? Yeah. That's such a good idea. Okay. And I knew that, I mean, I'm sure that they meant it to be like, don't do this. And I was like, what a fucking good idea. <laughs> you could eat a whole cake. <sighs> so a lot uh, of my youth was around, was all that Jesus eating disorders, looking right, being perfect, mm-hmm. trying to be this image of what superficiality sounds mm-hmm. like a lot of that. Um, and also you, so you sounds like you grew up in the, mostly in the eighties, late seventies, yeah. eighties, yeah. early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might be the same age. Yeah. Born um, in 74. Boom, 73. We are the same age. Um, Okay. Let's let's talk about leaving Danville. Okay. What was that like? Was it exciting? Did you have specific destinations in mind? Yeah, so I I applied to all the schools in high school. So this is funny. 98% of my graduating high school class went to college. Wow. Which is kind of insane. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Rise. It was going back to the other things we were talking about. Right. Yeah. Everyone did. So I had a lot of choices, and um, I had gotten to a lot of UC schools, and mm-hmm. my parents were like, go to Berkeley. You'll be so close. And I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. Yes. I want to be as far away from this as possible. They were like, but you could come home on the weekends. and won't that. I was like, no. Yeah. So um, I went to UC San Diego because I fell in love with it. It's just, it's so beautiful, and mm-hmm. the weather's perfect, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I just... I love the beach. I, I don't know. And mm-hmm. it's a great school. And they had a great mm-hmm. theater program. So I went I went to UC San Diego. And then I did some acid for the first time. And I saw God. And he like fist bumped me. And he was before fist bumped. He probably high-fived me. But he was like, <laughs> we're fine. Oh, good. He was like, you don't 
don't worry. All that stuff, like, it's like he's like, you and me, we're cool. Mm-hmm. All that other stuff, just don't worry about it. And just, you be yourself. It's cool. And mm. I was like, oh, thanks, God. This is great. And so I started, <laughs> yeah. So I, I started dropping a lot of acid. Like, in college, I did a stupid amount of acid. Okay. But I still got really great grades. Like, and one of the things that I, it's weird about just who I am. The more, the busier I am, the better I do. Okay. And so one one, it's a, it was a quarter school, and this one semester, I took 36 units, Whoa. which was like nine classes or something, yeah. and I got a 4.0, okay. and I was like, I could do anything. And, and you're doing, tripping and the I, whole time. The whole <laughs> time. I was just wow. like on acid. And, but I love to read, and I love learning, and like I love college, and yeah. I just I'm, I love school because it's the only place where you they tell you what they want, and then when you do it, they tell you you did well. Hmm. And then you have feelings of like, ah, because then I learned in the real world, nobody ever tells you when you do well. Then right. this, the haters come in. The only way you know you're doing well is when everybody's like, you suck. Right. And it's right. like, wait a minute. I thought that you're supposed to tell me I'm doing well. Yeah. And why didn't I follow the rubric? <laughs> so I, I love, I love school. And especially going, you went straight, no, no years in between, nope. just straight out of high school. Straight Not up. a lot of people I'm finding who now who did that will be like, I love school. There are a lot of people who are like, oh, I wish I took some time off, or I only learned loved, loved to learn, learned to love learning later in life. Sure, but you liked it. Oh, I love it. Okay, yeah. Was I it mean, because you were tripping the whole time? Maybe. <laughs> well, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't do that much acid in graduate school, but I did smoke a lot of pot. So right, because it's easier to understand poetry when you're high. Yeah. Like if you read someone's poem and you're sober and you're like, I just don't know what they're saying, and then you smoke a little doobie. It's like, oh, I totally get it. Yeah. I get it. So it's write, drunk, edit, sober, read high. Yes. Okay, yeah, got it. Exactly. <laughs> adding yeah. read high to the end. Of Absolutely. That. Yeah. And I love, I'm, I don't want to sound like this fucking dilettante, but I love, I love reading. Yeah. I, I just, it's like one of my favorite things to do. That's okay. Yes. I, yes. That's a good thing. Um, uh, so you had mentioned, I, I want to talk about your, your, grad school and going to SF State, but I think before we talk about that, because you grew up in the Bay Area, do you remember your first time to come to San Francisco? Do you remember your early impressions of the city? This would have been probably in the late 70s, 80s? Yeah. So I remember going in on the BART with my dad. He was taking me to work with him, and I was probably nine. But I know we'd been in the city earlier than that. Well, there's two stories. Okay, here's the one that I remember of us driving in, and it's really weird. Um, my grandmother's cousin was a nun here in San Francisco. Okay. And she died, and they made us all go to her wake. And it okay. was weird. And I was like six or seven, and it was hot in the car. And I remember going, I remember going over what's now like Geary to go down Fillmore, and then there, we went like up another thing. And mm-hmm. like, so we were down on like the deep the by Clement in the Richmond. Yeah. And that there must have been a, it was a nunnery. I mean, I don't remember where, but I remember that. I remember being in the city and being like, okay, this is weird because there's no buildings at this part of the city. Right. And then there was a nunnery and there were all these nuns and there was a dead nun and it was gross. And they wanted me to kiss her. And I was like, I don't even know this lady. And then one nun, she like kneeled down and she's like, are you going to be a good little nun when you grow up? And I was like, no. And now I sort of regret that decision because then I would have had like, God take care of me, or I could have lived for free or something in the city and not have to deal with men. It'd just be so much easier to just love Jesus. (laughs) But I remember that as a child. But then also going in, 
to my dad's work, which was downtown with all the big buildings. Mm-hmm. And mostly what I remember are the questionably housed and seeing people sitting on the street with dogs and signs and asking my dad, like, I have changed. Can I? And he'd say, I've seen this guy for 10 years. Mm. And he'd keep walking. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, but they, they're, and he's like, if you're going to do something, buy him dog food. And I was like, mm. okay. But so that's what I remember was ha- feeling feelings for people that were clearly indigent in some way. Right. And my dad being like, just step over and don't worry about it. They've mm. been here forever. This is their choice. And yeah. I was like, oh, that, uh, okay. Yeah, that callousness that's pervasive. Unfortunately, but, but it's the Vietnam. It was, I mean, it's, and you'd think that that particular age group would have a heart because right. most of the people on the street were from Vietnam and right. Vietnam vets and they'd serve the country right. and everyone wants you to serve the country, but then they don't want to take care of you after. Afterwards, and yeah. then that whole Reagan thing where he dumped out all the mental institutions and just threw them all in the street in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And then our questionably housed population just exploded and nothing. We didn't. And yeah. so my dad came in every day. He drove the van pool and sometimes we'd drive in with him in the van pool and that mm-hmm. was super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, what about fun trips? So not funerals and not your dad's work. Did you do fun stuff in the city? Um, no, that was mostly Oakland. So okay, we can get, talk about Oakland. Yeah, we'd get char siu bao yes. from Chinatown in oh, Oakland. Yeah. God, and yeah, we that had sounds a, really good right now. <laughs> well, and we'd get we'd get like six steamed and six baked. Yeah, and in the in the on the way home, it'd be like, okay, everyone gets three of them. You can save them for later, or you can eat yours now. And then someone would always eat an extra one, and it was always like, I only got two. But we went to <laughs> went to Fairyland a lot as a child, yeah, and did the whole key, the little yellow key in the box, and like sitting in front and listening to the stories and the, all that stuff, and the little petting zoo. I remember that from being little. Nice. Um, and the Oakland Zoo, we did that way more than the because my parents probably think we're afraid to bring us into the city because they Mm. especially with my dad working on fifth he thought it was just dirty and gross and it's so funny that like i live so close to them right and And i'm like sixth street i'm not afraid like whatever but um yeah so i have more memories of oakland more fun more fun fun time but like i mean danville was just we lived on a cul-de-sac and we played kickball until the sun went down you know yeah and um it was a lot of just Church trips, but that was all out to the that was all to like the Delta and stuff and okay and I we did trips to um, the Redwoods like in Santa Cruz a lot when I was a kid mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in the Redwoods so that was mm-hmm. nature camping like or uh summer Christian trips. summer camps yeah okay at yeah camp yeah six, okay. Christian summer camp from fourth grade all the way through high school like, yeah praying to Jesus out in the woods all that kind of fun stuff right yeah a lot of singing songs to God uh, as opposed to Fist bumping or high fiving, right, yeah, in yeah. A but although being out in the, I mean, it is religion is almost a hallucinatory thing oh, because sure. you do you're praying to some hallucination. I mean, in your mind, you have an image, mm-hmm. and is that not a hallucination mm-hmm. of something that pictorially has been passed down? Yeah, I and mean, I think I think a lot about God. Yeah, <laughs> or, awesome. Or construct of God or whatever. Right. Well, you you met him in a in a trip. I so. met him. Yeah. Yes. So, in, a, you, in a large disco ball, like inside yeah. a disco. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Yay, God. So I guess let's go back to Lee. Um, so you graduated from UC San Diego. Graduated from UC San Diego. And in what then? 1996. Okay. And then I moved back up here to Davis, and I got a teaching credential oh cool so i lived with my my now ex-husband he went to veterinary school at davis mm-hmm. and so i didn't know what to do after college because i had a theater degree 
what am I going to do with this? Right. So I got a teaching credential, and I taught in Woodland for a couple of years. I taught at group homes. I did special ed. Um, and then – Did you like it? Did you like teaching? I lo- you know, I loved special ed. Regular education was really difficult even yeah. back then. Yeah. A lot of entitled kids and parents, and it was difficult. But special ed's amazing mm-hmm. because – a lot of times the parents weren't even in the picture. So right. you just had a relationship with the kid and you could, and I mean, back then they called it severely emotionally disturbed, but now they took the S off cause they found it stigmatizing. Mm. So it's just emotionally disturbed mm. students. But I really enjoyed that cause I felt like I was making a difference and I was young and I didn't know what I was doing with my life, but I taught for four years and then I, I wanted to get into graduate school and I realized I, I can't be a teacher and get into theater graduate school. I need to do theater. So I quit my teaching job and I, Started a theater company up in down in San Diego. Down in San so Diego. So we were up in Davis, and I did a bunch of a theater with uh, Woodland Opera House and a lot of community theater, and worked with them for a while. And then my we got my ex husband got a job as a veterinarian in San Diego, so we moved down there, and that's when I became like a bourgeois housewife. Oh. And we bought a house, and we had a Lexus, and we had a wow. BMW, and we had a what other car did we have? We also had a Ford Explorer. We had you know two dogs and two cats and a spa overlooking the. Two people, three cars. Right. Two people, three cars. Yeah. yeah. And okay. uh, two people, four bedrooms. And we thought our yeah. house was small. Right. And I was like, oh, we're just we downsized from our other house in Vista. What would he do? But um, <laughs> so, yeah, we lived. I had this husband thing and I had a theater company. And my, ex, my husband's ex-husband's, my ex-mother-in-law, she was like, why don't you get a real job? So I quit my theater job. And because I had been applying to graduate school and I wasn't getting in, I wanted to go to UC San Diego. And they finally, Les Waters was the guy who let people in. He's the cousin of Roger Waters. Anyways, oh. and he said, you're never going to get in here. You have to go away. He was like, go to Pennsylvania and you can mm. come back, go somewhere else. But he's like, you went here for undergrad. We just, right. we want, we want our program. We only accept two a year, not you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but everything <laughs> works out for a reason. So it's fine. But I, so I quit my theater company thing. And I started working for Ethan Allen. And oh, I was, I was a visual merchandiser. Insurance. What do they do? I'm, they sell furniture. The furniture, right? Insurance, yeah, whatever. yeah. And I, so I was a visual merchandiser. So I was basically like a high-paid set designer because I had this big store. And I was like, I'm a set designer. This Somewhat is so creative. Fun. Yeah, super creative. Yeah. But also, hog in a corporate wheel of consumerism. Right. And then I stopped taking birth control because I thought I wanted to get pregnant with my husband. And I realized that birth control is a systematic calling of critical thought from women's brains because I wrote a novel in six weeks. Okay. Like I got off birth control and I wrote a you novel. You gave in birth six to weeks. a novel. Exactly. Fuck and I was yeah. like, what happened? And I started being really creative again. And Fiction I was like, or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, wrote a, I wrote a novel. And, um, and then I was like, I think I want to go to graduate school for writing. Yeah. And then I quit my job, left my husband, and got a DUI like in the same month yes. in 2007. And then I won a free ticket to Burning Man to be a chef. And then at <laughs> Burning Man, they were like, they were like, you should move to San Francisco. And I realized there's really no reason for me to be in San Diego. I can't drive anymore. I, I can't substitute teach. I can't get to any of my work, any things. Right. I don't know what to do. So I just... Move to San Francisco. And that, that, so, so now looking for a grad school is a little different because you're looking for a writing program well, versus theater, right? Right, exactly. So, into the, after I wrote that novel, I was like, ooh, I need to go to graduate school for writing. And I met some girl outside of a bar and she was like, you should go to San Francisco State. They've got a great program. Look into it. And then I looked at home. I was like, oh my God, they do. Yeah. So I moved to San Francisco. What year was that? 2007. 
Okay. And then I applied during that year for 2008, and I got in. I couldn't believe it. Nice. So I got in for fiction, and I did the two-year program in fiction. And then I was like, I'm not done with this. I love writing. I'm going to get my MFA in poetry. So I applied to continue on and get my MFA in poetry. And I was doing all these open mics, and I was doing all these things. And in, I the ta- in the city? Oh, in San Francisco, everywhere. Name drop some places that you Well, the you old were... Amnesia. I yeah. used to do tons of poetry readings at Amnesia. I got nice. the opportunity to work with... So, I mean, so many forum from C- CCSF, their um, publication is so beautiful. And oh, they yeah. do all of these shows. I've written and, for them. Aren't they amazing? I love forum. And they 15 put the, years ago They or put the pictures next to the poems. And nice. I love, I love forum so much. And yeah. they were doing shows. And um, so I got to read with them. And through the lit, the lit crawl, lit smash, all that lit stuff. Quake. The quake, lit quake. And I got to read for that a bunch. And work with CCSF and their poetry center, blah, 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 blah. Nice. But then... In 2011, I was still in poetry school, and I was like, there's not enough stage time here. And so I realized at the open mic I was doing at Amnesia, there were comedians. Mm. And I, I knew some of them from here, from doing radio at mm. Mutiny Radio. And they were like, you know, five punchlines is three minutes. Why don't you try it? Like, you mm. do poetry. Like, why not just do this instead? And I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. So I wrote five punchlines, and it was three minutes. And I went up at Amnesia, and that was... July 17th, 2011. Was it a different, were you in a different mindset? Like was, how different was reciting poetry versus doing comedy? They're they're exactly the same thing. Um, They're crafting language to elicit elicit an an emotional response. response. So poetry is just, you know, like the poem about my third abortion is boring, but the joke about my third abortion is hilarious. (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) so it depends. And with poetry, oftentimes, even at amnesia, I'd be like, if I take my shirt off, will you listen to my poem? And people will be like, (laughs) yes. And so I take my shirt off and in my bra, just like recite poetry. Nice. So people thought that was funny. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty easy transition. And there's so much more stage time in comedy. Did you make kids laugh or like your family laugh when you were a kid? Or was this was this like spontaneous comedy had entered your life? Well, I mean, I've always like I've always been the outsider, and I've always had to deal with deal with trauma through humor. At least mm-hmm. I did, or by being the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Cheerleading was great because people were looking at me, and I mm-hmm. liked that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I tried to tell stories as a child, but usually I was sort of shamed. Like sh- children should should be seen and not heard. Right. Or. You know, Shut up, kid. Have a graham cracker. Right. I yeah. wanted to tell jokes and stories and be on stage. I was a, I, I was a ballerina for 23 years. And okay. I was classically trained in piano for 13 years. So I performed in more traditional classical right. ways. Right, 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 um, right. But give me a microphone and have people laugh. Because I'd rather laugh at myself before anyone else could laugh at me. Okay, so fair enough. that's kind of the way that, that happens. So your story about getting started in comedy, though, you mentioned – that you had you knew people from can, yeah. we go, can we go back a little bit sure um, and um, talk about what is this place and right. this thing so, that we're doing right um, now i joined the, when it was pyrocat i joined in 2008 and i was on a show with diamond dave whitaker who did common thread and i'd read short stories and then after a couple of months it was so disorganized and i was like hey man you know i could stage manage your show for you and he's like oh that'll be great ah, i think that'll be that'll be incredible <laughs> Because I'd run boards because I'd done theater for so long and right. I'd stage managed so many shows, blah, blah, blah. So I started stage managing a show and I was like, oh my God, I love this. I love radio. I love radio. And then I got my own show and I was doing lots of things here and performing and a lot of poetry and spoken word, blah, blah, blah. 
And then in 2011, we had to kick out the guy who was running the place because he fled the country and he'd embezzled some money. Mm. And then the FCC had come down on us because we had an illegal terrestrial tower. So we were Mm. broadcasting illegally. But Mm. we thought that under the FCC guidelines of 1942, that if you're at a time of war, you can have a shortwave tower. But I mean, like, America's always at war, so but we're we good. Were, we're in operations and skirmishes, so once he said mission uh, accomplished, the Anthony Bourdain thing happened, and he came here, and then, like, we got a lot of press. And then the FCC came after us and tried to fine us $10,000. So what happened yeah. was we changed to Mutiny Radio because we're like, I don't know what Pirate Cat was. There's no fine. Yeah, we're none of us are them. Who are yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in 2011... Pirate Cat became Mutiny, okay. and it was run by, like, a board of people. Okay. And then in 2013, they were all like, fuck this shit, we're out. Oh. And I said, no, 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 this is, I've started comedy now. Without this place, doing my open mics, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I need this place. Yeah. And they're like, well, good luck. So I wrote, I wrote a business plan, and okay. I brought it to the group, and I was like, I'll take it over. And they mm. were like, okay. Mm. So in 2013. You, by yourself? By myself, yeah. Okay. So there were five people running it. And then in 2013, I was like, I'll just run it. And now it's 2021 and it still exists. Awesome. So that's that. Can we talk quickly about the Bourdain thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just watched uh, the documentary that's coming out next month, Roadrunner. Um, So for me, this is timely. Um, And I actually forgot until you just mentioned it that he came to the cafe, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he had a bacon maple latte and he you know, talked into not that particular microphone. We have new microphones now, but he sat in a chair like that right mm-hmm, there and mm-hmm. um, was interviewed and then it was on the TV and it was crazy. And Was um, it cool? Were you here for that? No, I wasn't invited. Oh, okay. I wasn't part of the cool group. But, oh, um, got it. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I was here when jo- um, George, um, not um, the punk parliament, P-Funk, George, oh, Clinton. George Clinton was here. Came I was on. here for that. I awesome. gave him some pop brownies. He ate. Yes. And that was awesome. I was like, I gave him pop rounds. And the, one of the people was like, are you sure he's performing tonight? And I was like, this, George Clinton That's, smokes crack. Like, yeah. these two pop brownies are going to yeah. do nothing to this man. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, so Anthony Bourdain was here. And I mean, it's exciting. There's, a lot of people have been through this building. I got to interview um, Paul Mooney once on the phone. Nice. So that was R. exciting. And yeah, I mean, everybody. And Anthony Bourdain, RIP. Super like sad. Yes. The yeah, documentary is um, is really good. Uh, watch it. I watch it. It's a lot, you know. It's like biographical, so it wasn't rough for an hour and twenty minutes, and then it goes into the last two years of his life, and oh. it gets it's waterworks. Oh, yeah. I'll watch it. I love um, that guy. I love all his books. He was an incredible writer. Totally. But the the good thing about the documentary, I don't want to take us too far down that road, but is that it has the people from his life are. In it, wow. So right, Wife, um, daughter, so, so you get the, the, oh. not that she's in it, but not like uh, in the like it's footage. Sure, she's not interviewed, but Octavia, all that stuff. Um, way off on a no, tangent now. Good. So yeah, so now like I, we made it through the pandemic. I was doing outdoor shows, and we still are. Nice. I love Parklets. I've yeah. got a bunch of weekly shows, and um, I've had five comedy festivals here. The last one was in 2020. Right before the pandemic, like a week before the shutdown, awesome. and so I'm gonna, I'm excited. I can bring it back in October, mm-hmm. uh, the 10th or the 16th. But this time, I'm gonna do it at all the new venues I have because I gained so many outdoor venues through the pandemic, and I'm really excited. Do you want to tell folks where those are? Yeah, uh, every Wednesday at 7:30, we do a show with Asiento, which is a half a block from here. Mm-hmm. And Debbie of Asiento is amazing, another small business owner that made it through COVID. Awesome. And then Saturdays at 2 o'clock at Atlas, which is a block from us mm-hmm. in the other direction. Mm-hmm. 
and same thing. Um, they made it through. Yes. And it's incredible. So and happy. They have amazing sandwiches. And then the bar at Dolores, which is on 29th and Dolores. I do shows with them on Thursdays and the last Sunday of the month. Awesome. And um, yeah, and I'm going to be, I'm going to hopefully be working with El Rio. And then I just talked to the owner of OMG because he just opened Rakesh. And he was like, I want to be in the festival. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. of course. Oh my God, that'll be so great. Awesome. So they're they're back open, which is exciting. And the festival you said is is in October. It's gonna be October tenth through sixteenth, I believe, this year. Okay. Yeah. I I'm might just be getting married that, that week, but Ooh, I'll do my best. Thank you. I'll do my best to come to see you. Yeah, I got I got my first STD from my first marriage. Okay. Yeah, sexually transmitted debt. That's what you get. That's what you get when you get married. Good luck. It's fun. Or maybe the kids these days are progressive. They call them STIs. Oh. So maybe it's more sexually transmitted income. Income, yeah, 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 so, yeah. So this will be my third and my and my fiance's first. So she's like, third time's a charm. Yeah. I hope. I hope. Congratulations. Um, thank you. We have like three minutes, and then I have to start another show. Okay, well then, perfect. Joke workshops up next. So that's the other thing we do at the station is on Mondays at six o'clock. Uh, there's joke workshop where I run it like a graduate school poetry thing, except mm-hmm. that it's jokes. So mm-hmm. comedians do four minutes, and then they get four minutes of commentary from nice. their peers, and then it's an open mic. And then we also do Fridays at 6 o'clock, and it's a contest where comedians do four minutes, and I invite audience to be judges. And then they judge the comedians, and their five favorites all get booked shows with, like, paid food and drink and money and the whole deal. how cool. That's right there here for the community, I and it's super fun. I need to tell my fiance, she, she's between jobs, and <gasps> she wants to, she's like always wanted to do comedy. Wow, I told her Mondays, to come here. I'm gonna this tell her to right come here. here. Tell her to come to Mutiny Radio. Okay, a couple of minutes. So what I want to end on is what do you of San Francisco. I mean, we're on literally the cusp. Tomorrow is Tomorrow. when California opens. Yeah. What are your kind of hopes and visions for, for what San Francisco can be moving forward? Oh my gosh. I hope that the San Francisco UBI that's funding a bunch of artists can continue and expand and be able to fund more artists so that we can value art as a, monitor, a monetary resource instead mm-hmm. of putting all of our money into tech and realize that that art is important mm-hmm. and that artists, that is a job mm-hmm. and that our work does have value. And as people, we have value and to, to give us the opportunity to create, that's, I'm sorry, we have to create. I'm sorry. I can't be in insurance. I have to create, Right. but we should respect artists and, and value their gifts monetarily. And if I could see that going forward in San Francisco, I'd be so happy. Bands, everybody. I remember, oh, I love all the bands. I love Floating Goat. I love all the metal bands. Oh, I'm so excited. We're going to get back. Like, I get to see Shows, metal again. Yes. Show, like, yes, <laughs> yes. So, but all of the, the, the bands and the visual artists and the comedians and the, I mean, even karaoke goddesses, mm-hmm. just everyone to be able to express themselves again. I hope that that can come back. Um, but I'm going to yeah. interject real fast. It's mm-hmm. for you. It's not a hope because you're doing the work. You're <laughs> yeah. helping bring it back. If I helping the city with gambling. So they're going to give his a portion of their money to donate to the city. Chicago save the night they save Chicago. No, wait, the night Chicago burn, right? Oh, God, the song's got terrible. Who died. Oh, that's even worse than those survivors. <laughs> how, did I, how did I take the song The Night Chicago Died and be like, The Night Chicago Won? It's terrible. <laughs> uh, no, it's like, My kind of town, Chicago is. My kind. And Chicago right. has plenty of praise songs. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Chicken in the Car. And then you got the band. Oh. Do you remember Victoria Jackson's Saturday Night Live? 
I'm a fan of Victoria Jackson. I understand her politics are not the greatest, and her views on uh, in well, this on, was years yeah. ago, so she didn't wasn't a mother yet. But I met her in. I didn't really meet her. I saw her and was right next really? to her in Chicago. She's one of my favorites from Saturday Night Live cast members. I thought she was really good. She's as weird as Andy Kaufman. I mean, she her, her Johnny Carson said when she was standing on her head, and she you know it's just you know it's good stuff. But again, her politics are really kind of. She has these views on like, you know, if you're if uh, the parents of a child is gay are gay couple, you can't let your kids play with them, and it's like well, they're just fucking kids, you know. That has nothing to do with your politics. Mm-hmm. But what have you? I have a fan page I, I created on Tumblr years ago, the uh, uh, for Victoria Jackson. An anti fan page. No, a pro fan, just the stuff I like. I mean, I think she's a great performer. She's funny. Mm. And she's weird. And weird in a good way, you know, like Andy Kaufman way. And mm. she outpaces a lot of the people on SNL for that fact. But, yeah, she went political, and it's just, you know, I'm just not, I just don't, I, I disagree with her on it. So, you know, respectfully disagree, but definitely disagree. Okay. You what saw her in Chicago. Is that Michael has gotten... Uh, the the winner of horse races for like uh, New York, Miami, L.A., and he's doing a little tour, and he's just like wow. down on the trifecta and hitting every time. What a weird! You're right. What a weird uh, superpower. And it's inexplicable. It's inexplicable. No, he looks at a newspaper and sees a list, and he, and then a name glows, and he says, "That one, the glowing name." <laughs> uh, okay, so after Schwarzenegger declared his count- candidacy, Coleman was like, "Fine, I'll vote for Schwarzenegger," and Coleman sort of withdrew. But it's too late; he was on the ballot, and he got eighth out of 135 candidates. Wow! Wasn't the story like some rich? Startup guy was the one who financed the campaign. I don't know. My my problem is that with Gary Coleman is that he became the butt of a lot of jokes, and you know he went along with it. So with Postal, the the video game, uh, he plays himself. Gary yeah, he Coleman plays himself. Uh, yeah. So in Postal um, Two in two thousand three, plays himself. And he was, in 1997, he was in a video game called The Curse of Monkey Island. And he doesn't play in Right, which is a famous fun parts game. Uh-huh. He, uh, was he an American, like, there was a, a David Zucker movie where Chris Farley's uh, brother played, like, a Michael Moore guy. And it was, like, a Christmas Carol, but American it was, like, an American Carol. Carol. Yeah, 2008, American Carol. I think Coleman was in that, too. Yep. He was. And then he was in Midgets versus Mascots in 2009. And sort of like what you're saying, he's getting all this heat. He was not a midget at all. He had um, a no. disorder uh, that prevented him from growing older. I mean, he's only 12 here, okay? But he, right. as a 12-year-old, he shouldn't look like an 8-year-old. But it was called um, punk-ass dysmorphia. Fucking punk ass dysmorphia. Yeah, and it, it it stunted his growth. Wait, was that the same thing, Amelia? Uh, 
Oh, forget it. I was going to talk about Webster Lewis, Emmanuel Lewis. Right. Was that Jack in the Box, right? No, that was Rodney Allen Rippey. Oh, that was Rodney Allen Rippey, yeah. He was just a kid. I don't think he had the same disorder. Um, no, he did not have punk-ass dysmorphia, no. He was just a kid. Yeah. He was a normal... Hey, I have a... <laughs> yeah. He was normal. He was known for commercials, fast food commercials. I mean, he wasn't an actor, right? Uh, no, no. Uh, I don't really know the story of Rodney Allen Rippey, except that that was his 15 minutes. Like Clara Peller, 15 minutes. Where's the beef? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Where's the Beef Lady from Wendy's commercials in the 80s. Who we saw? Now we go back to the Chicago Gangsters. We saw her. On the grave of Al Capone. What was it? Uh, yeah, this is, I, I'm not sure what their beef was, but somehow we put him out of business. Now he's receiving the bad. Oh, the people upstairs are undercutting him. They've got their own carts. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> now, guess what? We're finding out that the money that that they raised to help the city isn't going to the people. It's going to the banks. And the mayor's trying to explain that they're the bondholders and the Constitution says that they have to get paid first. And everyone's having none of it. They're calling him an asshole. Even Maureen Stapleton will go, yeah, you know, you really are an asshole. Go ahead. Do you want to listen? Go ahead. Okay. Before. Hello, Jeffrey. And now Maureen's turn. And Norman. Oh, no. Norman's doing his Mr. Roper look. Right. I know. I half expected them to go. Love boat will return after this. <laughs> so now he's like, we shouldn't have trusted them, and it's like a low moment in the play, in the movie screenplay. Um. So Paul was on. Before he hit it on uh, different strokes, he was on the Jeffersons as the nephew. He was on Good Times as Penny's friend. Um, Facts of Life. Was, well, he played Arnold on Facts of Life. They did a kind of a tie-in. So he was on the show by that time. And it was after, of course. Oh, gosh. Do you remember the show Hello, Larry? McLean uh, Stevenson yeah. from MASH. Left Match to do his own series, and he was like a morning DJ, divorce DJ, talk show DJ, talk show, radio show. And I think the Drummonds came by and visited him. Like he's buddies with uh, Mr. Drummond. Uh huh. Now that was what, which MASH star? He was the first, uh, he was before Henry Potter, uh, uh, Henry Morgan. Um, uh, before Sherman T. Potter, it was Henry. Henry, what was his name? It was McLean Stevenson, uh, the actor. No, Henry, yeah, maybe it was Henry. Wasn't Henry dating Hollips Hulahan? God. No, he wasn't. Was. Frank Burns was, but on... Frank Burns. On Mutiny Radio uh, Loop, right, on the, the uh, bumper, right. it's got that. Henry! Yeah. 
This major fool of yours, right? It's Henry's his name. Right, right, right. Oh, funny. So, uh, also, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna, I was just gonna say that uh, David Hasselhoff showed up as Michael Knight. That uh, oh, uh, Wesley, uh, no, Dudley. It was Dudley, uh, Arnold's friend. They went over on the set of Knight Rider, and they got to meet the car- Kit and my and David Hasselhoff. Uh huh. They met Kit. Like he's a real. Yeah. Let's do a selfie, Kit. Uh, no, I'm I'm working right now, and I'm trying to focus. Okay, so right no. now, the um, Lester and Frank 